previously on Down and Away. The police know who did this. Lots of locals know who did this too. They pretty much know the when and the how as well. As for the why, well, the why is as pathetic and predictable as the motive for most murders. The problem is the where. Not where did it occur, but where is Rick Atwood? At around 9.30 in the morning of August 10th, 1983, which was a Wednesday, Rick was gassing up his Trans Am at the Quick Mart in White Cloud. Our named suspect had already been seen out and about and was headed to meet Rick to buy some pot and possibly set up a deal. By the time his car was gassed up that day and Rick replaced the nozzle, the day was well upon him. It was a yucky day, it rained on and off, Not a lot, just enough to keep everything a little wet and gooey. Now White Cloud, it's a tiny little town of about two square miles, and its population has fluctuated just a scotch up or down from about 1,500 people over the years. Everybody knows who to go to when they need their car fixed, or when they need their septic tank pumped, or when they want to buy a dime bag of weed. That's just small town life. Rick Atwood sold pot. If I go by the collective accounts, including a supplier of his, customers, and his girlfriend at the time, he would get a couple pounds at a time and sell it locally. He visited his supplier in Grand Rapids a couple days before he went missing because he apparently owed him about $400 and he was due to be stopping back by with that cash in a day or so. Rick should have shown up that day to pay back the dealer, but he never did. Court will call the matter of the people of the state of Michigan versus Roy Snell, file number 20889FY1. Counsel, you want to place your appearances on the record? We're the state of Wendell County Prosecutor for the people. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Dan Gunderson, Assistant Attorney General for the people. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Bill Olson, the people. Great prize out here on behalf of Royce Snow. Thank you. We are, for everyone's uh, knowledge, uh, streaming this matter live on our YouTube channel as required uh, by the Supreme Court and the orders of the governor. We are in the district court in Nuevo County uh, and have been practicing social distancing and a limited number of people in the courtroom. We have made available uh, viewing for the victim's family in a adjacent courtroom uh, and streaming live to that courtroom as well. And today we have also uh, made available additional uh, viewing for other uh, individuals. Uh, Mr. Stay or uh, one of the assistant attorney generals, are you satisfied that we have met the requirements for the victims or that they're satisfied with their viewing abilities or their ability to be present for today's hearing? The people are, Your Honor, thank you. At the time I prepared season six for production, I had what I would describe as a pretty healthy police file from which to work, and that's generally what I prefer, facts. Based on those reports, it was pretty clear who committed this crime. The only remaining question was where? Where is Rick Atwood? Unfortunately, that question has yet to be answered. I made a decision early on not to contact the inner circle of Rick's family, his mother and father, and his siblings. 
that choice was not inadvertent. I usually do like to speak with family when preparing a case, and I did speak to some family members who were very helpful, just not the folks that I mentioned. I understood that there were health issues with regard to Rick's mom, and quite frankly, sometimes it's just not necessary to contact family and drag them through the emotional upheaval required to go through it all again, particularly with a stranger, and that's who I am. I'm a stranger with no emotional investment. Pushing people's bruises is not my favorite thing in the world to do, so I never take it lightly. Generally, my main reason for contacting family at all is to draw out some description of who the victim was in order to help you, the listener, get a better idea of who they are. That's my job, to get you to give a shit about the victim. So I weighed my desire to do that and talk to those folks against what I believed would just be me dragging them through more trauma. And I eventually decided to focus on family that was in the periphery, as well as a bunch of Rick's friends and people in his age group. They were able to paint a picture for me, complete with everything that I needed at the time to give you a sense of who Rick was. And this is what they told me. Rick liked fishing, and he liked hunting. He said Rick was funny. I was told that a lot. A funny guy who could also be serious. I was told that he liked rock music and fast cars, hence the music for my intro. That's really for Rick. As soon as I heard it, I knew it was right for the season. And Rick also sold pot. And because that plays a part in the story, I think it bears mentioning. But it also bears mentioning that pot is legal in quite a few states now, and those numbers are growing exponentially. What was seen as a stigmatizing activity decades ago is commonplace now. But I mention it because we so often invite victim blaming when we even mention these things. Rick Atwood is a victim, a human being who had value and promise and hopes and dreams, and people who loved him. And nothing about any of that is canceled out because he sold pot. So let's start with that premise at the forefront because the friends of his that I spoke with, they were pissed. Pissed that they didn't know what happened to him and pissed that they were robbed of the benefit of his company for all these years since he went missing. But he didn't go missing. Rick Atwood was murdered. And I think once you hear the testimony from the witnesses in the preliminary hearing, you'll probably come to that conclusion as well. Now, first of all, we have to keep in mind that this is only a preliminary hearing. The result of it determines whether a case will be bound over for trial. The state must show probable cause that a murder has been committed and that the defendant committed that murder. As I mentioned earlier, my focus on the podcast was where Rick might be. And that is still my focus in case there's information out there that has not filtered its way to police. Essentially, my job is to augment what police do not get in their way, and for that reason I left out almost all the names of witnesses and the defendant in the original podcast season. I referred to the suspect in this case as unnamed suspect, because it was clear in the report who police believed killed Rick Atwood, but I am not generally disposed to pointing the finger directly at one single person before the adjudication process has begun, even though I do always try to give you, the listener, as much as I know about each person of interest and then let you decide what you think. But today that defendant will finally be named. Roy Snell Jr. I want to make sure to add the junior on there, because there was a senior. Roy Snell Sr. is recently deceased, and I suspect that some of the people who have come forward in more recent days did so because of that. 
Having spoken with a number of people about the Snells, I can tell you that people were scared of them. Roy Snell Sr. was a bully, and so was his son Roy Jr. Roy Sr. threatened witnesses and told people to keep their mouths shut, and so did his son, Roy Jr. You'll hear some testimony about that. Very early on in this case, police were candid with the family. They kept them in the loop, told them everything that they could without compromising their case. And Rick's family, they were respectful with regard to that information that police shared with them. As far as I'm concerned, everything about this case was handled very well by police and family. And because that's not always the case, I think it's important to point it out. You know, I am recording today with a heavy heart. Because there is a lot going on right now in current events. What we're all seeing splashed across our TV screens and being amplified on social media. I can see why people have just had enough. Particularly black Americans. I'm a parent, but I cannot imagine being the parent of a black child right now and having any hope in what's going on in this country. The stuff that we're seeing all over TV... It's shining a glaring light on cops that don't do their jobs well. The kind of cops that give other cops a bad name. The kind of cops that put the lives of other members of law enforcement at risk simply by being on the force. This job is not for everyone. Not everyone has the disposition or skill set to do it well. We've all got to get together and figure out a way to do a better job of getting those people off the job so that we are all a lot safer. And we also have to do a better job of not lumping all law enforcement officers together and making the good apples suffer for the actions of the bad ones. I will always call out bad behavior on the part of law enforcement when I see it, just as I will always give a shout-out to the guys and gals in blue who are risking their lives and emotional well-being to protect and serve and bring justice to the people that desperately need it. All that's a topic for another day. But it's because of all that that I want to be clear about how good of a job was done here in this case. I think Detective Sergeant Dick Miller put together a fantastic case with a boatload of circumstantial and physical evidence. After he retired, other detectives and members of the Nuevo County Sheriff's Department took up the case and they kept on it. They never gave up. I don't know any of these individuals personally, but I want to thank them from the bottom of my heart because I know how much what they have done means to the Atwood family. They've told me. And I want to thank the Atwood family for reaching out once an arrest was made, letting me know that they had heard the podcast and keeping me in the loop. You are a decent and gracious brood. I have enjoyed speaking with you. Your parents did a fine job with you guys. So let's get to it. Because we're in the middle of a pandemic, things are being done a little bit differently. Nuego County is live-streaming proceedings for the public via their YouTube channel. So the first bummer here is that I missed the first day of preliminary hearings because it took me a little while to figure out where they were being held online. But I did manage to record the other day's proceedings, which I will share in case you missed the live stream. On day one, Rick's mom, Rick's girlfriend at the time, Deb Kane, and a couple of very important witnesses took the stand. Unfortunately, since I did not tune in, I was not able to record their testimony. But when we get to the end of Episode 3 in this bonus content, you will get to hear a summary of the important points that they testified to from the judge herself. 
I will read directly from the state's complaint affidavit regarding these witnesses so you can get a sense of the important points that they brought up on the stand. Deb Kane was Rick Atwood's girlfriend. The last time she saw him was the morning of August 10, 1983. Atwood was pumping gas in White Cloud, Michigan. After seeing him, she went shopping with her sister. She later returned to her and Atwood's trailer around 2 p.m., where she noticed his waders, fishing pole, and bag were missing. There were no other items missing, which would suggest he was leaving long-term. Walter Philos last saw Atwood on August 10, 1983 as well, around noon, at the White Cloud High School. Rick was driving his 1975 Brown Trans Am. Walter Sanders and Roy Snell Jr. were in the car. Rick Atwood told Walter Philos that he would come back after he dropped his passengers off in town. Rick never returned. Walter Sanders admitted that he was riding in Atwood's vehicle with Atwood and Roy Snell Jr. on August 10, 1983. He claims that Rick Atwood dropped him off and continued on with Roy Snell Jr. Several years later, Walter Sanders told detectives that at some point while he was with Atwood and Roy Snell Jr., Rick Atwood exited the vehicle. While Rick was out of the vehicle, Roy Snell Jr. pulled out a gun and said, Let's rob Ricky. In 1984, J.B. Martin told detectives that he and Roy Snell Jr. went to Grand Rapids to visit Juliet, a.k.a. Candy McKinney. While in McKinney's home, Another man asked Roy Snell Jr. about the Trans Am that he used to have. Roy Snell Jr. seemed taken aback by that comment. J.B. Martin and Roy Snell Jr. stayed at a motel during that trip to visit McKenney. Roy Snell Jr. signed the motel receipt with the name Bob, and he told J.B. Martin that he never leaves his name to be found. A few months later, J.B. Martin told detectives that Roy Snell Jr. admitted to killing Rick Atwood. J.B. said that Roy Snell Jr. told him, Yeah, I killed him, but if I hadn't done it, someone else would have. I want to say something about J.B. Martin, and this likely applies to multiple witnesses in this case, particularly the ones that were not forthcoming early on. He testified to being scared of Roy Snell Sr. over the years, afraid to come forward with what he knew, and I have no doubt about that. When I research cases, I mine a lot of information from Facebook feeds, and I once saw a post made by Roy Snell Sr. It was a simple picture of a vehicle, a dark Trans Am, very much like the one that Rick Atwood drove. Roy Snell Sr. tagged J.B. Martin in that post, and beneath the picture of the Trans Am, he wrote, Westbound and Down. Now, maybe it's a coincidence, but having read the details of this case, the first time I saw that image and what was written, I figured it was a warning for J.B. to keep his mouth shut. As I've said before, the Snells, they were bullies, liars, and bullies. I was told often that people believed Snell Sr. had ties to the Chicago mob. I have no way of knowing if that's accurate, but that is the perception that a lot of people had. So it's clear why people allowed themselves to be bullied into silence over the years. So those are the witnesses that I did not get recordings of. But like I said, you're going to hear some of the things they said when the judge gives her summary at the end of episode three. So, day two began with Detective Sergeant Dick Miller. Because there's a lot of extraneous information at the beginning of each witness's testimony, I'm going to try and cut the beginning introductions. 
those tedious questions that lay the foundation for their ability to testify and get right into the meat of the questioning. I do want to warn you about Detective Sergeant Miller's voice because it's not often easy to hear what he's saying. So I'm going to make an effort just for this one witness to jump in from time to time and clarify what he has said. And I want you to hang in there because he's the only witness testimony that is a little hard to hear. Everyone else is pretty clear. So if you can make it through this one, you can make it through the rest. Also, you're going to hear some clicking throughout the testimony. That's the court reporter. Because I recorded this off the live YouTube feed, we get the audio that we're given and we're just going to have to deal with it. As one of my son's kindergarten teachers used to say when she passed out treats, you get what the hand gives you. Of course, the and like it was implied. So Detective Sergeant Miller's testimony begins with items taken from Rick's Trans Am when it was found. So that's that uh, UD-14 reflects what you took from the vehicle at that time? Yeah. All right. And could you detail for the court what items you took? Just by way of listing. So the plastic bag contained three knife books and a McDonald's straw wrapper, item number four. Plastic baggie containing one matchbook, McDonald's straw wrapper, tissue paper, a cigarette butt, and business card. Item number five. Plastic baggie containing one light lamp light, one ceramic switch, one cardboard token, and one auto light lighter package. Item number six is a plastic baggie containing two big lighters, two candy wrappers, M&M pipe, bottle cap, and anti-acid wrapper. Item number seven, one plastic baggie containing paper towels. Number eight, one plastic baggie containing plastic capsule with plastic cover. Item number nine, a plastic baggie containing cigarette Bust from an ashtray. Item number 10, one plastic baggie containing residue from the left rear door. Number 11, one plastic baggie containing residue from the left rear door. Item number 12, one plastic baggie containing residue from the right rear door. Number 13, one plastic baggie containing residue from the driver's seat and floor. Number 14, one plastic baggie containing debris from the right rear floor area. Number 15, one plastic baggie with dirt sample from the trunk of the vehicle. Number 16, plastic baggie with loose coins, glass samples, bottle cap, paper tissue. Number 17, plastic baggie with two metal zipper pieces and plant material. Number 18, Plastic baggie with contents of ashtray from the right rear passenger seat. Item 19. Plastic baggie with contents of a dirt sample taken from the driver's door area. And also containing a metal zipper piece. <coughs> Number 20. Plastic baggie with bottle caps, paper scraps, spice and plate holes, an artist paintbrush. Number 21, evidence bag envelope containing three empty pop cans. Notation 16, item 16 is further described as consisting of one fifty cent piece, one quarter, one dime, three nickels, and five good pennies, with gross value of one dollar and fifty five cents. Item number 20, 20, 
and it contained two quarters, value of 50 cents. Okay, so most of that, if you could make it out, was junk. Fast food wrappers, soda cans, loose change, stuff that most of us would have in our vehicles. But dirt and debris samples collected would prove important, as would the cigarette butts taken from ashtrays in the vehicle. Did you ever collect something that you uh, logged as item number 25 on a separate sheet? Possibly, I don't recall it independently what it was. May I have continuing permission yes, to... You may. Yes, thank you. Did that refresh your recollection? Yes, it did. And what item was that? This is item number 25, and item number 25 was collected from an item inside the vehicle. Okay, what was item 25, and where was it collected from? I classified it as a blood-type stain on a label of a spray bottle, and there was a clutter in the truck of the car as well, past your part of the vehicle. But I took note that in the trunk of the car was an aerosol type can that had a paper wrapper on it. And I took note that there was a glob of crusted material. It wasn't that large. It was probably, I want to estimate, about the size of a navy bean that had dried on the, on the uh, paper. And it was, well, I looked at it and I asked myself, I thought it was most likely blood. What did you do with it? I collected it and uh, secured it and subsequently uh, had it examined by a pathologist. Now, this blood sample in particular, found on a spray bottle in the trunk, would prove to be one of the most important samples taken from that car. And you will understand that a little better once the forensic pathologist, Dr. Cole, testifies. Next, the prosecutor ran Detective Sergeant Miller through the procedures for collecting evidence as far as packaging, in this case, scraping the dried blood off the label, keeping the label itself, putting the items in a paper bag, and properly marking the evidence bags, including noting where the sample was taken from. He testified that he did this with all of the evidence collected. And then after that, they covered the chain of custody of all the evidence. You previously mentioned the dirt. Uh, you collected uh, samples of the dirt. What, if anything, did you do with those samples? Dirt, the dirt sample? Yes. I had uh, contacted the professor at Michigan State University, if I remember correctly, asking for analysis of the soil okay. in an effort to determine the origin of where it came from. And what did you do with that um, navy bean-sized globule that you collected? I, I'm thinking back on it, it's not nearly as large as a navy bean. Okay. Perhaps about the size of a green pea. Okay. What did you do with that? The same? Yes. Initially, I gave it to Dr. Ronald Grazier, who was the Italian mark pathologist, I guess the term um, Okay. And uh, I told him my concerns. I thought possibly that the dried globule, what I thought was blood, if it could be properly mounted on a slide with paraffin and slice ultra thin. And based on that, maybe give me a little idea what type of tissue, if any, was rinsed out the body or the source of the globule, and uh, he got back with me and gave me the results. Thank you. It's telling that Detective Sergeant Miller understood early on how important this bit of blood could be. He describes it as a globule and believed that if it contained tissue, it would go a long way in proving that a violent incident had occurred. And uh, the cigarettes, you found those cigarettes to be noteworthy for some reason? 
there were other cigarettes too. I, I don't have a record of what. Back then, we didn't have a whole lot of experience working on DNA. It was before things really started moving. And uh, I don't recall at that point in time sending those serious butts in for analysis for, for DNA. I don't, I don't recall doing that. Okay. So even though back then they could not be tested for DNA, Detective Sergeant Miller collected the cigarette butts and they would eventually become some of the most damning evidence against Roy Snell Jr. because he told police in multiple statements that he had not been in that vehicle. Unfortunately for him, his DNA on those cigarette butts would directly contradict that. Did you find any larger items in the vehicle that you found to be noteworthy or suspicious for something? Yes. What? Well, the one obvious thing was in there, there was a fishing pole and some gear. But I know some wooden handle. What kind of handle? In my opinion, it belongs to a shovel. And just the handle? What state handle. was it in? It was broke off, uh, perhaps closer to the shovel end and elsewhere, and that was laying in the trunk of the car. So there was a broken shovel handle in the trunk? That's correct. And why was that noteworthy to you? Unusual. First off, first off, why did somebody save this? What, what value does a broken shovel handle out? Um, did it appear to you that it had been sitting there broken for a long time, or freshly broken? If you could tell. Well, <laughs> it wasn't a brand new shovel handle. It had been exposed to the elements for some time and weathered. And uh, no varnish on the finish at all. It's a bare wood. And uh, as I say, I had some previous experience being a, basically a dish digger. I used to work for a landscaping corporation and did an awful lot of shovel work. And I had my opinion of the shovel was an old shovel. It had been around for a while. Uh, I couldn't explain why the shovel handle was broken, but. Uh, it didn't hurt to keep it, so I just added it to the, the collection of evidence. Okay. So, would it be fair to say it looked like an old shovel that had recently broken? I believe so. Okay. What value would a broken shovel handle have? Indeed. It doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out that a broken shovel handle in a trunk where you've just found blood might be indicative of something untoward having happened. You know, I'm not sure of the police theory regarding whether Roy Snell Jr. had help burying Rick Atwood, if that's what he did, but I think a broken shovel handle would suggest that he didn't have an easy time of it, that's for sure. Maybe when we get to trial, we'll get to hear more about how Roy Snell Jr. allegedly disposed of Rick's body. Because I did hear some stories while I was preparing the podcast, some I shared and some I couldn't. One story in particular about Roy visiting the house of a friend that day and they both eventually left that house after having possibly grabbed some shovels. I can't say whether that story is fact, and I want to be clear about that, but if it is, it would make sense that after having tried on his own to dispose of the body, he could have had to go get some help. And another shovel, if the first one broke. The next topic was the Gateway Motel. Rick's Trans Am was left there, likely by the perpetrator. That's in the Grand Rapids area, which is some 50 miles from White Cloud. 
Were you able to confirm where the car was initially towed from? Yeah. And where was that? Gateway Motel. And did you eventually go to the Gateway Motel? I did. Where was that? But, uh, the structure no longer exists. They tore it down. And today it no longer exists. Today, but at that time, it was a 28th Street in East Belmont. I would estimate distance from like, all of our car shops to the Gateway was pretty close to five miles, perhaps less than five miles. Okay. And did you speak to some, the first time you went to the Gateway, did you speak to somebody there? Or did I, you call them? or The motel? Yes. Yes. Okay, and uh, is am I correct in that you contacted them more than once? Yes. Right. Um, the second time that you talked to them, did, do you recall who you talked with? I believe Gail Rushlow. Gail Rushlow. And uh, did you ask her for any records at that time? I did. Uh, what records did you, re uh, first of all, what records did you receive from her? I received a registration card for the occupancy of room number 20, and also I received a two separate sheets of telephone records that when customers make an ongoing call and charge the account a separate ledger. I'm approaching you, detective, with three pieces of paper stapled together. If you could turn to the second page, please. It's what's been previously marked as uh, exhibit number six. If you could turn to the second page, please, pay no attention to the first page. I've got page number two in front of me. Okay, do you recognize page number two? I do. And what is that? It's a long distance telephone traffic sheet that's uh, maintained, by the, uh, maintained by the Gateway Motel. So that's what you received from the Gateway Motel? I believe it was the same day, yes. Okay. Uh, when you obtained that, did you ask for the phone logs for a specific day? I asked for a bracket of days. Okay, what was that bracket? Well, he did basically when he just, Mr. Allen disappeared to the time the vehicle was towed in. Okay, and so would you say you asked for, uh, would it be fair to say that you asked for the records from August 10th and 11th? <laughs> Probably the 11th, I would imagine. The 11th? Okay. If you could turn to page three of what you have in front of you. Okay. Do you recognize that page? I do. And what is that? This is a copy of the registration card for the motel at Gateway Motel, and which is written on the name of Mike Roberts, Jr. All right. Um, and what room was that for? 20, I believe. All right. And does it have a date on it? Yes, it is room 20. And it also records on a dock on that card a vehicle associated with it. And what vehicle? So the Trans Am. And what date is on that registration card? What date is the registration card? August 10th, 1983. Thank you. Uh, now, you received those from Gail Rushlow? I did. And she was an employee at the Gateway Motel? That's correct. Your Honor, we would move to admit what's been mar previously marked as uh, exhibit number six. It is accompanied, as counsel correctly stated, by a business record certification page filled out by Gail Rushlow.
Any objection, Mr. Priceheart? No, Your Honor. Now they have admitted into evidence a hotel registration card for the Gateway Motel, which I will note does not have Roy Snell's name on it. I will remind you that J.B. Martin had said that on one occasion when he was with Roy Snell in a motel, he signed in under an alias. There is also a long-distance call log admitted into evidence, and it plays into this story because of the numbers that were learned had been called from room 20 that day. Now, talking specifically about this registration card from Mike Roberts in room 20, why was that... Why did that stick out to you? Why did you think that was important? Well, because that's the same name that was used to the record service to pick up and repair, repair the vehicle. Did you get that? The Mike Roberts name was also given by the person who called the record service to have the vehicle picked up. You will later hear that no such person ever came to retrieve that vehicle. It appears to merely have been a ploy to have the vehicle moved, perhaps distanced from the Gateway Motel. These telephone records, what are those? What are the telephone records? What do they show? Well, they show the outgoing telephone call was made from room 20 to two separate telephone numbers, which were located in the way of 20. And those calls were made on August 11th? Yes. Were you able to track down those phone numbers that were called from room 20? At a later date, yes, sir. How did you do that? Well, I had to get a search warrant and, and uh, contact the telephone corporation at the headquarters in Detroit and I had to ship the documents or court order to a fellow detective. And uh, he came back with the information I requested. And what information was that? I think it was who the subscribers were for the two, for the two New England County telephone numbers who they were and their location of their address. And what was that information? Objection. The objection is that that would be hearsay, the answer to that question? Yes. What was the information? All right, your response. The information was Your response, Mr. Benderson. Your Honor, this was... Uh, obtained as part of a report and preliminary examinations reports that are not made by law enforcement are admissible without foundation. I think that's uh, accurate. I'm going to allow uh, you to answer the question, Mr. Miller. Do you want me to ask it again? Well, you're listening to know who the subscriber information was yes. for both phone numbers. One was an elderly fellow who was a West Island. Charles Brown was his name. I'm sorry, what? I didn't hear. Charles, Charles Brown. Brown. Charles Brown. And the other one was to a Roy Snell on Baseline Road, which was east of White Park. So, two long-distance calls were made from room 20, one to a Charles Brown and the other to a Roy Snell on Baseline Drive. Both were Nuego County numbers. Now, did you become familiar over the course of your investigation with the Snell family? Yes. Are you talking about Roy Snell Sr. or Roy Snell Jr.? I'm talking about Roy Snell Sr. Thank you. Uh, with that registration card, did you forward that card for handwriting analysis at some point? Yes. Okay. As the result of the information that you obtained from these phone records and registration card, uh, did you speak with uh, the defendant? For a short period of time. Okay. Uh, 
And did you have advice him of his rights at that time? Why not? Well, you're just another person out there and uh, trying to get an answer why phone calls were going to his dad's home. And at that first contact you had with the defendant, um, Roy Snell Jr., I'm calling him the defendant, Your Honor, not to be rude, but just to. For clarification. Yes. Purposes, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, what was his demeanor like? So I found him really quite evasive and declined not to answer the questions I was asking him. Uh, yeah, it was a very short conversation with him. There was another officer with me at the time. And it was obvious to me that he had information that he was trying to conceal and did not want to talk about it. Okay. Uh, was that the only time that you spoke with the defendant? No. Uh, did you have occasion to speak with him a second time uh, at another location? I had a time when he was in the Kent County Jail. Okay. And at that time, why were you talking to him? I had a court order asking for handwriting something. Detective, I am handing you what's been marked as exhibit number seven. You could take a look at that. It's two pages. Yes, sir, and I recognize it. And what do you recognize that to be? This is a two-page sheet of a handwriting uh, sample of uh, Mr. Snell. Is that the handwriting sample that you took that day that you just described? Copy of it. Okay. And uh, do you recall when you took that sample specifically? 28th of February of 1985. Thank you. Your Honor, I would move to admit what's been marked as people's number seven, or exhibit number seven. Mr. Price, like any objection? No, Your Honor. Uh, the court would admit uh, exhibit number seven, the handwriting sample. Thank you. If you could publish that to the court, please, detective. Just hand it up to the judge. Thanks. Thank you very much. When you took that handwriting sample, was there anything unusual about that interaction? Yes, sir, there was. What was unusual? The behavior of the defendant in filling out the form. What was unusual about his behavior? It took us two hours to get those two sheets of paper. And myself and Detective Jack Weaver was with me. And uh, his copying of the different types of letters and different parts of the handwriting exemplar very painfully, painfully slow. And it took us two hours to get what we got. And it was uh, stylized. It was obviously obvious to me that he was trying to disguise his writing. Okay. Detective Miller and another officer went down to the Kent County Jail when Roy Snell Jr. was in there on another matter to try to get a handwriting sample to compare to the writing on the hotel registration card. It took them two hours to get that sample because, according to the detective, Roy Snell Jr. was employing active measures of deception trying to disguise his handwriting. Now, uh, when you presented him, uh, and presented to him and asked him for the handwriting sample, did you also show him the search warrant? Yes. And what did he do with the search warrant? He read it. You read it? So you were satisfied that the defendant could read and write? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, did he make any statements at that time that you found noteworthy? I remember a statement, but I don't recall which day it was that it took place. Um, 
it took place during a, a one of your contacts with the defendant. Yeah. And what was that? Are we are we talking about a statement made in the jail, or are we talking about a statement made some other time? Do you recall when that statement was made? I thought I did, but I can't document or review the report. Okay. Um, would it be fair to say that it wasn't at your first contact with? Oh, him? definitely not first time. Okay. How many times did you interview the defendant? I think a total of three. Okay. So uh, the second time was the handwriting sample on February 28th of 85? That's correct. And when was the third time? Time of day. Um, the third statement, do you recall the date? Is there something that would refresh your recollection as to when the date of your third in contact with the defendant was? There is some sort of record of Okay. Could I have one moment, Your So there was a brief pause to locate a document to refresh the detective's recollection. And the reason why the lawyer is taking the time to do so is because that utterance by Roy Snell Jr. that they're trying to get on the record is important. Detective Sergeant Miller is now retired, and while he's doing an admirable job of recounting details, he also isn't going to testify to something that he cannot recall without refreshing his recollection with the documents that he himself made over 30 years ago. I've cut out the few minutes of paper shuffling it took for the lawyers to find the document in question. What is it that you're looking at there? I'm looking at a supplemental report dated February 20th of 1985. That's your supplemental report? Pardon? That's your supplemental report? It is. There's my signature. Um, and I attempted to interview him on 220 of 85. After giving him the right, he said he didn't talk anymore. Okay. And he told me everything he was the first time we met. So looking at the date, that being February 20th of 85, and previously identifying the handwriting sample date as the 28th, could it be possible that of the three times, the handwriting time was the third time as opposed to the second time, and you just have them um, transposed in your I think, I think what happened there is, uh, remember, that I discovered that he was in jail. And I went to see if he would talk with me. He didn't. Okay. And then I went and got the handwriting order for our and went back for the third time. Now, when you spoke to him, you said he didn't say anything at this interview, correct? On 220. On 220? The 220 interview? Yes, thank you. I remember him making a comment about somebody he thought was talking to me. Okay, and what. Was that on 220 or 228? Yeah, apparently, it would have to have been on the 20th or the. Okay. Oh, pardon me, it would have to be the day the search warrant was executed. On the, because that was after he read the affidavit of the search warrant that he made a comment. So, when you went to collect the handwriting sample, you showed him the search warrant, he read the affidavit, and said something to you? Yeah. What did he say? Somebody should be telling, somebody should tell J.B. Martin to shut us off. Thank you. Somebody should tell J.B. Martin to shut his mouth. J.B. Martin had told Detective Sergeant Miller that Roy Snell Jr. said to him, quote, Yeah, I killed him, but if I hadn't done it, someone else would have. At some point, did this turn from a missing persons investigation into well, a different kind of investigation? Well, it turned into a homicide investigation the very day we discovered the vehicle. And why did you... Why did you change your mind about the nature of this investigation? 
for the blood in the car for one, and number two, the manner in which it was concealed. Uh, three, that their motel records have a fictitious name, which we trace back directly to the cell and the Brown residence. Uh, and that's when it became officially a homicide. Um, if I can turn back to one detail, you mentioned the Brown residence. That was one of the other phone calls. Yes. Uh, was that noteworthy for any reason? His significance became apparent after we talked to Mr. Brown. And what significance became apparent? Well, Mr. Brown had a caretaker, and she had a daughter by name of Anita. We discovered that Royce now, the defendant, had a living arrangement with uh, a Mackey, Miss Mackey. And Miss Mackey was a daughter of Mr. Brown's paramour. The defendant was dating um, someone who may have been living at that home? Cornelia Mackey's daughter. Okay. Someone who may have been living at the Brown residence? Yeah. Okay. Charles Brown's phone was the other number that was called from room 20 of the Gateway Motel, where Rick Atwood's Trans Am was left. Roy Snell Jr. had a living arrangement with a Miss Mackey. She was the daughter of Charles Brown's caretaker. Um, did you ever, uh, be, you said that this became a homicide investigation. Did you ever find Ricky Atwood's body? No. Um, did you search for it? Oh, there, a lot. We've, uh, we did some search techniques we hadn't used before. Uh, the, uh, a lot of foot searches, uh, based on various potential leads. Um, we all come back. We did not find the body of Ricky Allen. Uh, where did you look? Primarily in Loyola County, Merrill Township, Wilcox Township. Uh, any place I could find some potential connection with Mr. Snell or his associates. Um, Was there a spe any specific location that you focused your search on? We spent a lot of time on a hunting property up by Merrill Township, which is northern Northern County, I think roughly referred to as the 800 acres. And uh, we determined that the 800 acres was a parcel of hunting land that one time was a, managed by Mr. Snell's father. He was a caretaker. And uh, there's a pond, a lake, and a small stream on the property. That 800 acres to which he referred was a hunk of property that Roy Snell Sr. managed for the Forestry Service, part of the Michigan Creek Reserve in Broman in Merrill Township. We used aerial uh, helicopters with infrared spectrometry uh, on foot searches. Uh, we could, could not come up with a, a location where the body was hidden. When did the search of that property begin? Did it begin in 1983 or later? Oh, no, it, it, it was probably the next year. I, I forget exactly what year we had the helicopter up there. Um, I got a record in the report. It's just there. Um, this particular case was not started and concluded in one calendar year. We're down many years. And every time something looked promising, we'd take a good look at it. I got ready to retire, and I had to hand over the unresolved case to my partner, Scott Real. And here we are today. 
Uh, how many suspects did you identify during your investigation? One. Only one? Only one. Uh, and who was that? Mr. Snow. Uh, the defendant? The defendant. Why did you focus on him? All the evidence was directly to him. There was no other indicators of somebody else involved in a homicide. Every, every telephone call or activity, statements made to other people, it all came back to the doorstep. He was responsible for the murder. Thank you. One moment, Your Honor. We have no further questions at this time. Your Honor, I'm, I believe that the cross is going to be fairly lengthy for uh, Mr. Miller, or for Detective Miller. We have a lay witness who has been waiting out in the parking lot um, who has some personal responsibility, I think some medical responsibility as well. I'm asking the court to take him out of order right now. Um, he's been sitting out there. And the best way to explain it is he's in sort of distress. Any objection to that, Mr. Price? No. no. I appreciate it. I appreciate your indulgence, Mr. Prysak. I know this is an unusual situation for all of us. Uh, for the benefit of the record, these witnesses are essentially being sequestered in their vehicles in the parking lot. The prosecutor's done the best they can to give them an approximate time, but uh, obviously we're not always sure how long witnesses will last. Mr. Miller, Detective Miller, I'm going to have you step down and exit the courtroom, and then we're going to take another witness, and then I'll have you come back. All right. Thank you, sir. So Detective Sergeant Miller leaves the courtroom to wait for the next witness to complete his testimony before he can be subject to cross-examination. Witnesses are not allowed to listen to testimony until their own testimony is complete. Next on the stand would be John Vanderwoody, but in the time it took four officers to locate him and deliver him to the stand, there was quite a bit of what I would call active communication between Roy Snell Jr. and his lawyer. It seems like he'd been doing some stewing during... Detective Sergeant Miller's testimony, and he wanted his voice heard. Obviously, this isn't the time or the venue for that to occur, but his lawyer felt the need to mention this on the record. Uh, and I've advised him that the proper procedure, since he hasn't, is to talk to me, and then I will decide what to relay to you, or if he should talk to you, if there's no objection from counsel. Uh, and he's rather anxious uh, to make his, uh, his feelings known. Uh, so no disrespect, uh, Judge, to you or, or uh, learned counsel here, but uh, that's Mr. Stone's uh, concern. And I appreciate that. I know it's a difficult uh, situation. I'm sure he wants to... Uh, say a lot, but I, I'll just tell you, Mr. Snell, that Mr. Prysak's been doing this a long time. He's very good at what he does. I know it's hard to put your trust and belief in, in others right now, but you'll have an opportunity, and I would ask you to just continue to talk to Mr. Prysak about those concerns, all right? Thanks. Sir, I'll have you come right up here. Watch your step as you walk up. Have you raised your right hand before you sit down? Thank you. Do you solemnly swear oath or affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Thank you, sir. You may have a seat. Thank you. You may take off your mask or leave it on as you choose. I think it's somewhat difficult to speak with them on. Uh, sir, can you tell me your name? John Roger Vanderwee. And can you spell your first and last name? J-O-H-N-B-A-N-D-E-R. Capital W-O-U-D-E. 
Mr. Is it Vanderwood? Woody. Woody. Vander Woody. Can you tell me, have you watched any of these proceedings today or yesterday via live stream? No. On YouTube. You gotta be kidding. <laughs> I don't even know how to turn a computer around. You and me both, but I gotta ask. All right, sir. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Judge. And uh, Mr. Vander Woody, thanks for joining us today and also thanks for your patience uh, to get in here. Uh, can you tell us how old you are today, sir? 73. And uh, I want to take you back in time, if I can, to 1983. You promise? I promise. And uh, But we got to come back today here. Uh, in terms of uh, what you were doing for a living back then, can you help uh, Judge Dykeman to understand that? Well, I was a mechanic and I owned a service station, towing service. Remember the name of it, sir? East Beltline Towing Service. Can you tell us where it was it was, it was at that time was East Beltline Standards in Towing Service. Okay, part of the standard uh, brand name? Yes. Okay, and uh, full service gas station back then? Yes. Uh, you had uh, mechanics, I think you said, is that correct? Yes. Yourself included? Yes. And uh, did you have a, uh, a tow truck or tow trucks available to your business? Yes. How many? Probably at that time seven. Okay. You know Matthew Zanto? I do. Okay. How do you know him? He was employed by me. Uh, back in 1983? Correct. Can you tell uh, the judge uh, basically what he did for you back then? Basically, uh, Matt drove a tow truck. Okay. Pump gas, you know, changed oil maybe once in a while. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I want to draw your attention specifically to uh, uh, August of 1983, uh, did you receive a uh, call for a tow at the Gateway Motel? I did. Okay. Um, you familiar with where the Gateway was back then? Pretty much. I thought it was on the East Belt Line, but I see that it says it's on 28th Street, but it's right there close, I think, to the okay. Belt Line and um, 28th. The individual that called, they did they identify themselves? Uh, they did. I don't remember if I took the call or somebody else did. We had several people that would take calls, so I, I couldn't tell you. Okay. You know, they, they always get the name, address, phone number, blah, blah. Right. Um, in terms of uh, that request uh, for a tow, uh, you say you don't remember if you took the phone call. Is that I don't. I do not. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, did, uh, you, did, you, did you or somebody from your business go down to collect that vehicle? Matt Zanto. Okay, so you sent Matt Zanto down to get it? Correct. Uh, did he go down with a tow truck of some type? Correct. Uh, when he came back, did he have a vehicle with him? Correct. What kind of vehicle did he have? Uh, it was a Pontiac Trans Am. Do you remember what color it was? Sort of a darkish color. You know, brownish, darker. Judge, might you have those photographs? Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to show you what's been marked as uh, exhibit number uh, uh, two here, or I'll start off number three actually, and uh, show you that picture there, sir. Does that look anything like the vehicle Mr. Zanto came back with? I would say yes. Okay, fair enough. Uh, kind of like looks like a burgundy kind of a little bit. Yep. Uh, it's kind of a chocolate color, yeah. Okay, and exhibit number two there. Uh, take a look at that photo. It's back into the same car. Look uh, again. Mm -hmm. That looked like uh, the kind of vehicle Mr. Zanto yeah. came back with. Correct. Okay. Um, 
the uh, vehicle, uh, was some work done to it uh, by your business? Not much. Tell us what work was done. Uh, we just kind of checked it over. It was a no start from my recollection and uh, found it was out of gas, but gas and it started. But uh, there was, to I remember, there was a dipstick that was messing in, which is troubling because you don't want to run it if it don't have oil in it, you know? Right. But uh, I believe we replaced that. Okay. Um, Didn't do much. I just want to make a quick note here to remind you guys of something. We had testimony indicating that Rick Atwood had put gas in his vehicle around 9.30 that morning. When his Trans Am was found, remember this was months later, the tank was empty. But given that we have information that the Trans Am was left at the Gateway Motel on August 10th, the last day that Rick was seen, whoever drove that car around after Rick became incapacitated, and that can't have been but a few hours later, at most, whoever drove it around emptied the tank. Sounds to me like a lot of driving was involved. Some of that occurred, unfortunately, with Rick's body in the trunk. And some of it was likely Roy Snell Jr. looking for a place to dispose of the body. And maybe even seeking assistance with such. Uh, where was the vehicle uh, put after the work was done? Oh, on the side of the building. Okay. Anybody ever come to collect that vehicle? No. Okay. Um... Do you have some type of reporting uh, that you do if a vehicle's abandoned in your possession back then? You know, if somebody... <clears throat> we did, but I don't recall. <clears throat> I think the state police contacted us. Uh-huh. They wanted the vehicle brought to the Rockford Post, if I remember right. Okay. Um, did the did the state trooper or detective come out to your uh, business and uh, look at the vehicle? I would say probably so. I don't recall. Okay, so you don't remember. You don't remember who called about the vehicle after you picked it up. You know, when I say who called, I mean uh, you don't remember whether the state police called you or if you called the state police. I don't. Okay, and you don't remember whether or not a detective came out and whether you when you while you were there, you don't remember that event. I do not. And. Uh, I guess the last thing I heard you say that you don't remember is basically how the vehicle left your uh, your place. I know how it left. Oh, okay, go ahead then. I'm sorry. We towed it to the Rockford Post. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Mr. Vanderwoody, thank you very much. Uh, I think this gentleman, uh, Mr. Prysock, may have a couple questions for you. I yield, Judge. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Prysock? Thank you, Judge. Uh, Mr. Vanderwoody, my name is Rick Prysock. I represent Mr. Snell sitting here. I'm going to ask you some questions. If you can't hear or you don't understand, let me know and I'll try to speak louder and rephrase them, all right? Fine. Okay, thanks. Uh, you owe, uh, you uh, own this uh, towing uh, service and garage in Grand Rapids, you said, for how long? Uh, I was there for 12 years. And I think Mr. Wilson asked you a uh, standard, what was that standard, connected with standard oil, kind of? Right? Yes. That was, you sold gas and correct. that was probably the gas and oil you sold was standard. Correct. Okay. And uh, you said when you got this phone call from the Gateway Hotel, you sent out uh, Mr. Matthew Santo to actually do the tow, correct? Correct. You didn't go with it? No. Okay. And when the truck was brought back, uh, was there anybody with him? 
or a car, I'm sorry, when the tow truck came back with the car, was there anybody with uh, Mr. Zanto? Don't believe so. And you said you did a little bit of work uh, in your garage. Did you actually do the work or did somebody, one of uh, your mechanics do? Uh, I usually, at that time, I assisted in just about everything that came in, you know, checked it over, so I had my hands on it. And uh, when you say you had your hands on it, uh, did it have keys with it? Yes. And uh, after you, uh, I think you said you put some gas in and started it up and there was a dipstick missing. Did you replace that? Yes. And it started up? Yes. And you drove it around and parked it somewhere uh, around yes. the garage? Yes. Uh, where did you uh, park it? At the service station on the side. And is that a secured area? Is that locked up? Uh, no. Right. And if you recall, did you lock the car or not? Couldn't tell you. Most likely we did. Okay. But you're not sure. I would. I'd bet you 50 bucks. <laughs> no. <laughs> Making 100, and I might buy. It, but I'm not. I'm not pulling. I'm not going to my pocket for 50 dollars. All right, let's go 100. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got me. So uh, anyway, it was parked there at the garage. You, you remember for how long? Uh, I do not. Okay. Did you uh, put anything in it or take anything out of it? No. And did you, uh, when it was there, did you guys take any, did you ever take any pictures any uh, of, of it uh, just for your record? No. And uh, when you uh, then towed it to the Rockford Post? Uh, how long uh, did it sit before you towed it there? Couldn't say. Was it that year? Or? Yes. All right, so you towed it at some time to the Rockford Post? Yes. Um, and I'll ask you the last question that looks like Trooper Watson asked you. Uh, did you get paid for towing? I don't believe I got paid for anything. <laughs> Glad to see Mr. Ralston about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any other questions, Mr. Wilson? I don't judge, and we'd ask that Mr. Vanderwoody be allowed to leave. Thank you, Mr. Vanderwoody. For oh, your you're story. entirely welcome. <laughs> you may be excused. You may now watch the proceedings on the live YouTube channel, and you're uh, allowed to leave the courthouse and the parking lot. Oh, goody. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good day. Be safe. You, you say. Thank you. So, after Mr. Vanderwoody, Detective Sergeant Miller is brought back to the stand for cross-examination by Roy Snell Jr.'s lawyer. Detective Miller, I think you know me, uh, and so I won't go through the usual spiel that I do, uh, but you know I'm here on behalf of Roy Snell, correct? Yes, sir. Uh, I think the last time we were in these circumstances was one of these cold cases. Pardon? I said I think the last time we were in these circumstances was the cold uh, case, the Siders case. That's correct. Yeah. It's been a while. Uh, I'm just going to ask you, uh, start with the last thing you said, uh, that you identified uh, Mr. Snell here as being responsible uh, for the murder. I think that was your words, correct? All of us that I discovered pointed towards him. Uh, however, we don't know that it was a murder or a homicide uh, definitively. You have no direct uh, information in that regard, correct? Do I, do I know that? I know from interpretation of the evidence that we collected. Well, well, we'll, we'll, get, to, we'll get to that. Uh, well, well, I would object. And it, a question was asked of the witness, and he should be able to right. answer the question. Yep. 
Go ahead. Go ahead and answer the question, Mr. Why did you say it was a murder? I'm aware of what the point I retired. I was aware of the whole case well. But with all the evidence that we had, uh, the review of the lab reports and the analysis of the different cells and uh, evidence, there's only one conclusion you can come to, and that is been a murder. Well, that was your conclusion. I think anybody will have that conclusion. Well, I, I'm not asking about anybody. I said that that's was my, more that's your my, conclusion. Yeah, that's your mine, but I think anybody who reviews everything I've reviewed will have the same opinion. Is that correct? Let me show you a, a report that I think from the Brown, I think you identified a sample that you collected. Uh, Council here showed you an exhibit a dried blood spray uh, wrapper, and you said you sent that to the pathologist. Could I look at it? Sure, I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to have it marked. It's a letter that was sent. This is marked as Defendant's Exhibit 15, uh, and I think you had talked about the uh, one of the things that you sent to a pathologist. A dried blood uh, on spray wrapper from 1975 Pontiac. I think Council here showed you uh, what you collected. So, could you take a look at that document and tell us what the, that indicates? The conclusion that he drew uh, in the uh, first two sentences uh, on the Last paragraph there, what conclusions did he draw about what? He said, I cannot prove from my studies that this would be human tissue. It could be of an animal origin. Many other theories could be used to explain this tissue and its presence. But the most reasonable explanation of this tissue is it's getting is a homicide. Correct. That was his conclusion. Yeah. yeah. But he couldn't tell whether it was human tissue or animal tissue, correct? Pardon? He couldn't tell whether it was human or animal. He, he could from his studies differentiate that from human or animal. Okay. Snell's lawyer focused primarily on the evidence found on that spray bottle in the trunk, specifically on a line or two from the pathologist report who first examined it regarding whether it could be animal or human. What Snell's lawyer didn't mention, but the judge will later mention in her conclusion, is that the blood that tissue came from was tested and found to be human. And when you say that Mr. Snell, you focused your investigation on Mr. Snell, um, did you uh, have occasion to talk to uh, another individual by the name of uh, Walter Sanders? Did you talk to him? I believe I did, but independently, I don't recall our contacts. So we'll okay. But you did uh, have some conversations with Walter Sanders? I'm pretty certain I did. And uh, did you talk to J.B. Martin, too, or no? I have. Okay. I actually talked to, talked to a lot of people uh, in the whole White Cloud area. I, I talked to quite a few people. Okay. And uh, in talking to those people, you uh, generated reports, correct? Correct. Number of reports. And one of the reports uh, that you were showing today was of an interview with uh, Mr. Snell. Actually, went there for this handwriting sample on, I think it was the 28th of February. Was it 85? I'd have to take a look at it. I don't remember what year. I think it was 
It was not admitted. But, oh, the sample, sorry. Yeah, I was just wondering the, the year was uh, one year. That was 85. I think it was, I, I believe it was 1985. Okay. So you, you go to Kent County Jail and you see Mr. Snell. Um, and you showed him a warrant for the handwriting samples, correct? Search warrant, yeah. Okay. Did you tell him why you wanted the samples? Or just that you had samples uh, that you wanted to collect from? I, I, I let him read the affidavit of the search warrant and then self explanatory. I was there to, for comparison purposes. Okay. And it was an investigation with the Atwood uh, disappearance, correct? Correct. Okay. And you said that he. Uh, did you read him his Miranda rights or no? Did you read Miranda to him at that time? The previous encounter where I read the Miranda, he said he didn't say It would have been normal policy for me to read it Miranda again at the time of the search warrant. You didn't write it down that uh, right. you read it? It's been 37 years and I didn't recall. You didn't, if you, if you had uh, read his Miranda rights, do you think you'd have written it down or no? I think I'd probably written it down. Okay, because that'd be significant, correct? So all that extraneous noise, that banging that you're hearing, that's Roy Snell Jr. He's banging his handcuffs on the table, trying to get his lawyer's attention. Based on my observations, he appears to be taking issue with the answers being elicited from Detective Sergeant Miller. It all depends what the results from the conversation. Well, one of the things that you said he told you was somebody should tell J.B. Martin to shut his mouth. That would be significant, wouldn't it? I don't think that he shut his mouth or talk, he talked too much. There's something wrong. something the fact that he, was, he felt he was talking to it. Well, you said, I wrote it down, somebody should tell J.B. Martin to shut his mouth. That's what you said, Mr. Snell told me. That's what I said. I'm saying qualifying that saying I'm not certain just exactly what Something to that effect. But that was the effect that he's talking too much. Not, he should, he shouldn't if you'd have written it down, we'd know for sure, correct? I would assume so. And you didn't write it in your report, did you? Not that I am aware of. But that would be significant, wouldn't it? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, you also saw him on the 20th, but he didn't make any statements or comments. I think you told us at that time. Other than I think that was uh, everything, he, he, everything I, he knew, he told me the first time around. Yeah, so it's going to keep going with everything he already said. He didn't have anything to add. I believe so. Okay. Now, you, I think you were telling uh, counsel here uh, that you talked to Roy about those uh, two phone calls that came from the Gateway Motel. Yeah. And I think you said that he didn't really want to talk to you about him. Uh, it was a short conversation. Is that what you said? Or is that what happened? It was a short conversation? Yeah, basically, he told us what he told us the first time around, and he didn't want to talk about it, and, then, and I think he did want an attorney for us. Okay. All right. So you didn't really talk to me very much about the, the phone call. All right. The questioning proceeded regarding evidence collection, what he put items in, how he secured it, things like that. And then Snell's lawyer got specifically to the cigarette butts. Was the, were the cigarette butts that you collected, were they in the ashtray in the front of the vehicle or in the back? 
I think you're going through that list, you'll say somewhere in front and somewhere in back. And one of those behind the driver's uh, seat, I believe that I'm put on the door post or something on the the only thing I see is plastic baggie containing cigarette butts from the ashtrays. So I think it's further down on the list there. Maybe it's the next page or something. Because there's another there's two separate, at least two separate entries there. Okay. Let's focus on number nine. Well, I'll have to have number nine before me. Um, that wasn't admitted, but I'll show you. Just a list of what was contained and what council showed you. That, that's also from you. Maybe that'll help you remember. Item number nine, the plastic baggie containing cigarette butts from an ashtray. I won't say where the ashtray is from. Correct. That's why I'm asking you, do you know which ashtray those cigarette butts came from? Independently, I cannot tell you. Okay. Cigarette butts were taken from the rear ashtrays and also, I believe, the ashtrays in the front. It should be noted that Walter Sanders already put Roy Snell in that vehicle that day. All of that was gone over in Detective Miller's earlier testimony, and it will be corroborated in other testimony. I will say that twice, this defense attorney brought up Walter Sanders and earlier J.B. Martin in reference to whether Detective Sergeant Miller had any other suspects. These gentlemen should probably buckle up for the actual trial because I suspect there'll be more of this to come. I would not be surprised if all sorts of things are thrown in their direction in an effort to deflect from the defendant onto them. And the lab technician, uh, were they there before you or after you? Before. And was that Glenn Moore? Okay, so Glenn Moore was the lab tech. He went over sees things out of the car, then later you go over and take more evidence that you find uh, or thought was significant? I, I took those things that I thought potentially could be significant. And, uh, but, uh, but the point I'm trying to make is Glenn Moore was in the car before you. That's correct. Okay. And so he took things out, to your knowledge. According to the report, yeah. Yeah, you may not know specifically what, but Mr. Moore took some things out. How long after Mr. Moore was there were you there? Do you recall? I don't recall independently how much time went by, but it'd be within a couple of days. Okay. Several days as well. Okay. And these uh, things that you uh, uh, actually, I've got the date right here. It says October 19th, Glenn Moore uh, was there from the crime lab. And then uh, October 24th, you were there along with Trooper. Uh, Grunau. So and then you went there and inspected it. So about five days later. Sound about right? I believe possibly. Okay. Directing your attention back to August 10th of 1983. Uh, do you recall the weather? The weather? The weather. I think I had two different days where I had the weather report. Right. I'm going to show you Defendant's Exhibit 5. Did you contact or get information from the United States Weather Bureau about the weather on I asked for that and the information they gave me. August 10th and August 11th? That's correct. And what was the weather on August 10th? August 10th, 0.46 inches of rain. Uh, they talked about the wind and whatnot. It was rainy that day. Okay. So that helps you remember that it indeed was rainy that day. 
I asked you a little bit before about uh, Walter Sanders. You said you did talk to Walter Sanders about I, the, I believe I did. the investigation. Um, and I think uh, from your report, when you did talk with uh, Walter Sanders, I recall, uh, I think you asked him twice if he uh, had killed uh, Ricky Atwood. Do you recall his answer? I have to review that. If, I believe I got a report where I sat and talked to him. I independently don't remember what he said. And I haven't confirmed that I did, in fact, talk to him. I believe I have. Okay. But uh, I'd have to go back to the report and find that narration, read it, and then I could answer your question. But you believe that you did talk to Mr. Sanders about it? I believe I did. Okay. Thank you. Dr. Green. Two questions, Your Honor? Sure. Detective. When you previously testified, when I was asking you questions uh, the first time, you mentioned uh, that J.B. Martin, I'm sorry, that the defendant made a statement about J.B. Martin while he was reviewing your affidavit for your search warrant? He was reading the affidavit and he talked to his reading, looked up at me and made a statement. So that would, would you characterize that as a spontaneous statement? I thought it was. Third question, Your Honor, I lied. Well, um, it was in response to anything I asked him. Okay, so you didn't ask him a question. Okay, thank you. Nothing else. Cool. Mr. Barsop, any other questions? No, Judge, I have a tendency to hold on to these right. things when I should. Uh, may this witness be excused? Yes, Your Honor. Right. Thank you, Detective Miller. Thank you. Thank you for your service. You can be excused, and you can now watch the live stream if you so choose. Thank you, sir. In the next episode, you're going to hear from the clerk at the Gateway Motel, the record driver who picked up Rick Stranzam, a forensic scientist regarding the blood evidence collected, and then the state will call Detective Sergeant Scott Rios. But he won't get very far into his testimony before court is forced to stop for the day. Stay tuned and you'll find out why. <laughs>